0: Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you, dear, like I do? If it's a crime, then I'm guilty.
1: Guilty of loving you. Hello, everyone! Welcome to the podcast Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. My name is Tori Telfer, I'm a true crime writer. My book, Lady Killers, is about female serial killers, and I am currently working on a book about con women, which is the light of my life and the bane of my existence. Um, because it's so much work and I have to email so many lawyers in so many different countries, and I don't know what to call them. Solicitor, dear solicitor Smith, dear lawyer, dear prof <sighs> it's very confusing. Anyway, I'm so sorry that this episode is coming to you a little bit late. Um, And thank you to those of you who reached out to see if I was okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I've, um, I just, I've been traveling and with my family, and my family's been dealing with some things, and I just, um... On Wednesday, when this was supposed to come out, I was on an airplane for most of the day. So I'm so sorry, but here is the story. It's here. It's here now, and you can listen to it forever. So I hope you'll forgive me. Um, Before we get into today's story, which is a crime-fighting broad, I just felt like we could use some positivity this week. Um, I have a couple of items of business to get out of the way. The first one is I would like to tell you all about a documentary that is coming out but needs your help. Now you probably remember episode 11 on Pulan Devi. I think it was um, a lot of people's favorite episode, definitely one of my favorite episodes. Pulan Devi was a girl from India from a, a lower caste and had a brutal life including um, multiple instances of gang rape. and. No one thought she was going to be anything. She was just like a shamed, wrecked girl, her village thought. Instead, Pulan became a literal bandit queen, striking fear in the hearts of every man who had ever abused her, becoming this total Robin Hood figure, um, this really inspiring figure in India, getting chased down by the law, getting captured, imprisoned, Going free, becoming a member of parliament, and then ultimately, well, spoiler alert, getting murdered at the end of her days by uh, men who were still angry at the violence she had enacted on their people back in the day when she was revenging herself on the violence they had enacted on her. Anyway, I love her story. It is truly one of the most thrilling and just unbelievable stories I've ever covered or encountered. So, uh, the first feature length documentary on Pulan it's just going to be called Pulan is being made at the moment um and the, it, it looks incredible, the trailer is so cool, but here's the problem, the really amazing people behind this film have lost their funding. They lost their funding mid-filming because their Canadian broadcaster filed bankruptcy, and so they're having to turn to crowdfunding to get this film off the ground, and that's where we come in. Let me tell you a little bit about this film and then I'm going to play you a clip from it. So like I said, there's a documentary about Pumon, and this film is going to tell her story through living witnesses, people who actually knew her and who are still alive um, There are interviews with members of her family her gang of outlaws how cool is that people who were present at important moments in her life archive photos archive footage interviews with on herself and then um, the they use a dramatic animated reenactment to sort of flesh out the rest of her story so let me play you a little clip from the film so you can get a taste for it
2: she's become a symbol of the wrongs uh, done to a woman. She's also the fim- symbol of resistance. Raped, tortured in many ways. She wanted to regain her self-respect which had been destroyed to smithereens. Yes, she killed, she killed. She massacred the upper caste people. In the hunt for Pulandevi, you could not even hide a needle in a haystack. I mean even a needle could be found. That was the level they took the hunt for Pullen Devi. was known to be very ruthless, but there was also that Robin Hood type of image about her. Then it went into the New York Times, there's that. a Guardian stuff so the reporter started landing up oh man the circumstances of her life would have broken any normal human being but she was so strongly spirited she was such a fighter that she chose to fight back and that makes her unique she's not coming from anywhere she's not coming from a big school or you know oh my my father was a you know minister or my mother you know, went to England to study, she rose from the bottom. As far as the lower castes of India are concerned, she is a goddess.
1: Alright, so if you like what you heard and you want to support this film further and get Poulan's story out to an even wider audience, go to PoulanDeviMovie.com, P-H-O-O-L-A-N-D-E-V-I Movie.com, and you'll see a donate button. Click donate. Whatever you can give would be greatly appreciated by the filmmakers. Alright, second of all, and then I promise we'll get to the story, I would like to break for a word from this episode's sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) If you are currently consuming this podcast, I'm going to guess that you are a fan of true crime podcasts in general. If so, I wanted to recommend Stitcher Premium for you. It is full of fantastic podcasts and a lot of new, fabulous and or ad-free true crime content. If you're looking for a new true crime podcast to check out, then you should look at True Crime Garage Off the Record, which is the latest project from the True Crime Garage hosts, Nick and the Captain. Every week, they're going to revisit some of the most haunting cases they've covered to date and discuss new theories, deep dives, and updates on your favorite past episodes of True Crime Garage. Stitcher Premium is also full of ad-free episodes of your favorite podcasts. So if you're a My Favorite Murder fan, but you're kind of sick of the ads, consider signing up for Stitcher Premium. It's also full of true crime shows from Parcast Network, like cults and conspiracy theories and serial killers, where you can do deep dives on whatever specific true crime theme floats your boat. Or if you're looking for something that's a little less crimey, you might like this show. It's with comedian Jolenta Greenberg and her skeptical friend Kristen Meinzer. It's called By the Book. Um, The two of them live by the rules of a different self-help book every episode to figure out which ones work and which ones are a horrible idea or basically, secretly, a pamphlet from a cult. So, um, you want to try out a month of Stitcher Premium for free? I've got a code for you. Go to stitcherpremium.com, that's stitcher, like, s-t-i-t-c-h-e-r, premium.com. And just plug in the promo code BROADS, that's StitcherPremium.com, promo code BROADS for all your podcasting needs. Today we're covering our very third crime-fighting broad. <laughs> I completely blanked on the name of it for a second. She is a crime-fighting broad. Uh, We are looking at a broad named Isabella Goodwin, who always had sort of a relationship with law enforcement, but didn't have any reason to think that she would become anything particularly special or successful or high-ranking in the world of law enforcement, until one day a captain called her over to his desk and said, Hey, how'd you like to try going undercover? Let's get started. Every morning, before setting out for a day of going undercover as a woman seeking spiritual guidance or an alcoholic gambling addict or a lost soul wondering about her future, Isabella Goodwin would eat breakfast and listen to some opera. She adored opera. She always had. She'd been born in Manhattan in 1865 to parents who ran a restaurant and a hotel, and as a young girl, she dreamed of growing up to be an opera singer. This dream survived into adulthood, sort of, as Isabella continued to take lessons and even sometimes perform as an adult. Her love of opera provided a secret glimpse into her truest self. While she wasn't an openly fiery, demonstrative person, Opera was her emotional outlet, and she adored the soaring highs and dramatic lows of the genre. It wasn't that her life didn't have any drama in it, or that her job didn't involve high stakes and dramatic risks and enough close calls to fill the juiciest libretto. It was just that Isabella was never one to boast about the work she did. She preferred to keep a low profile, to keep her face covered. Opera was, maybe, the one time where she really allowed herself to feel it all. (laughs) Isabella Goodwin's first introduction to the law was through her husband, John, a good boy with a wild streak, or perhaps a wild boy with a good streak, who she married at age 19. John Goodwin was a policeman, a roundsman, technically, who monitored the patrolmen beneath him, and he himself was a complicated figure. He was hypersensitive to the rampant corruption that was eating away the New York City police force from the inside at the turn of the century, but he was also susceptible to one of the things that was slowly destroying that same police force, alcohol. It was a crazy time to be a New York City policeman. You had to move your way up the ranks through bribery. You were susceptible to the whims and tyranny of your superiors. And the number one rule that you and your colleagues lived by was most likely, don't drink on an empty stomach. After seven years in the police force, John, who always had a keen sense of justice, made the mistake of complaining about the fact that his superiors were always bringing sex workers into police headquarters for their own enjoyment. His superiors claimed that, no, that's not what was happening. John had actually abandoned his post, which was why they were targeting him and trying to get him kicked out of the force, not because of anything they'd done. It was a highly stressful time for both John and Isabella, who was heavily pregnant with their third child. And things got much worse when John asked Isabella to accompany him on a rather strange errand. For some reason or another, John had left two pets at a saloon, a little dog and a parrot, perhaps the result of some poor purchasing decision he made while drunk and he wanted to go pick them up. So he and Isabella hopped into their carriage and went to find the little beasts. John retrieved them, put them inside the carriage, and began driving off. Presumably, the parrot was in a cage, though with John, you could never quite tell. But the little dog started going crazy when he found himself inside a bumpy carriage with a weird bird nearby and two humans driving him to God knows where. He started racing around the inside of the carriage like he was possessed, and as John tried to drive the carriage with one hand and grab the wild little dog with the other, he accidentally flipped the entire carriage over. Isabella fell out onto the street and everything else, the pets, her husband, and the whole carriage, came crashing down on top of her. A huge crowd gathered to look at the carnage. They saw a pregnant woman lying crushed on the cobblestones and immediately assumed the worst. As John was trying to bring her to his police station, which was nearby, the gawkers started yelling, she is dead, she is dead. She wasn't dead, but she was horribly injured, so badly that she would eventually lose the baby. When she finally opened her eyes at the police station, John was so overjoyed and terrified and crazed and emotional that his boss became convinced that he was drunk out of his mind. Or, conspiracy theory, his boss saw this as a great opportunity to claim that John was drunk and finally get him fired. Either way, the boss told John that if he didn't sign a letter of resignation then and there, he would throw John into a jail cell and keep him far away from his injured wife for as long as it took. John realized that there was nothing he could do if he wanted to be with Isabella. He signed the letter. After finishing his signature, John started to write the words, under protest, but his boss snatched the paper from his hands and covered up the words. It took Isabella seven long, arduous weeks to make a full recovery, but eventually she made it, and she and John even went on to have two more children. In the meantime, John dragged the New York Police Department to the court, and his case eventually made it all the way up to the state Supreme Court. After six years, during which public opinion was mostly on his side, the wrongfully accused cop bravely fighting a rotting, unjust system, he won his case and was finally given back his job. But for whatever reason—the stress of the legal battles, the stress of the accident, the stress of losing a child—John showed back up to work a ruined man. Dark impulses were beginning to wake within him, impulses that he'd managed to quell for years. Almost immediately, he was showing up to work in a drunken stupor, acting strangely, claiming that he saw people who weren't there. It wasn't long before he was back in court, this time for intoxication, but his trial turned into a sort of DIY sanity hearing instead. Eighteen people, including his beloved wife, took the stand to testify that his real problem wasn't drunkenness, it was insanity. John had lost his mind. On August 11, 1896, in the middle of a heat wave that was killing people and animals all across the city, poor John Goodwin died. And Isabella was left alone with four children and no source of income whatsoever, other than a few bucks given to her by some of her husband's sympathetic co-workers. She realized that she had to get a job. In the early 1890s, authorities of New York City realized that they couldn't keep hiring only men to oversee their prisoners because sometimes those prisoners were women and unfortunately, some of those overseeing men simply weren't to be trusted around women. When a male officer tried to rape a 15-year-old girl who was supposed to be in his charge, the Women's Prison Association and the governor agreed that they needed to expand their hiring to include women, women who could oversee women, and so a new job was created, police matron. It wasn't a very glamorous job. The hours were long, the pay was mediocre, and perhaps worst of all, there was absolutely no opportunity for advancement. While policemen had plenty of ways to climb the ranks—talent, bribery, skill, bribery, intelligence, bribery—a police matron was pretty much stuck being a police matron forever. Still, it was a paycheck. Isabella applied, and out of 226 applicants, she was one of the ten accepted in 1896. She was assigned to New York's eighth precinct by the commissioner at the time, Theodore Roosevelt. On the surface, Isabella seemed like a born prison matron, which was only sort of a compliment. She was a crisp, tidy dresser. She had a low, soothing voice. Her presence was calming and empathetic. She could take a snarling, drunk inmate and convince her to wash her face, brush her hair, have a cup of tea, and tell Isabella all of her troubles. All of these skills were great and useful, but they disguised Isabella's real strengths—her ability to stay cool under pressure, her ability to blend into a crowd, her razor-sharp intuition, and her bravery. She was only five-one, but she exuded a presence much bigger than her physicality. One of her colleagues said she had, quote, an indomitable and fearless quality that was something like a shining armor. As a matron, though, her shining armor wasn't all that useful. The Eighth Precinct was full of shady characters, but not much serious crime, and Isabella's job was exhausting and monotonous. She worked 12-hour shifts, one 24-hour shift per week, only got seven days off per year, and had to be on call all the time, because any time a woman was dragged into the station for drunkenly disturbing the peace, or knifing her husband, or running a brothel, or cheating at cards, or swindling someone at a fake seance, Isabella had to be there to get her booked in and comfortably situated. Also, much of her work was glorified housekeeping, making the inmates beds, sweeping, brewing another pot of tea. After three years, she was making her maximum salary, $1,000 a year. She had reached the top, and the top was not terribly impressive. As far as Isabella could tell, this was going to be her life until she retired, or, God forbid, until she cracked under the pressure like her husband had done. Her husband had worked in the police force for seven years before his superiors started trying to get him fired. Isabella had worked in the police force for seven years until the age of 39 when, one day, a gruff captain called her over to his desk with a shocking offer. This captain had been trying to crack an establishment run by a sketchy pair of criminals known as the Kennedy Brothers. He needed to know what was going on inside of the house, how often the Kennedy Brothers showed up, where they were staying, and so on. The problem was that this establishment was a pool hall for women only. There was no way the captain was going to be able to get a man in there. Out of his entire squad of highly trained detectives, not one of them possessed the single trait that was necessary to go undercover in a sensitive situation like this. None of them was a woman. Isabella listened in shock as the captain asked her, Hey, how'd you like to take a crack at it? For her first assignment, Isabella was given 30 days to go totally undercover, infiltrate the world of the pool hall, make some quote-unquote friends, and bring back enough information to get cracking on those arrests. The pool hall was located in the Tenderloin, New York's shady red-light district full of saloons, nightclubs, brothels, casinos, and all sorts of other places where you could get a glass of champagne and an eyeful of something distracting. Some called it Satan's circus. Isabella's biographer, Elizabeth Mitchell, points out that the walk down to the Tenderloin would have felt significant for her, as Elizabeth was slipping out of her old identities, her old skin, wife, mother, police matron, and putting on a new self, the world-weary lady, looking to be distracted. Actually, Isabella would have been adopting two new personalities, not just world-weary lady, but brand new lady detective on assignment, ready to bring down the bad guys. After seven years of making beds, it must have been absolutely thrilling to be out on the street. When she finally found the pool hall, she found that it was actually a fantastic place to bet on a fine number of horse races, accompanied by a glass or two of cheap whiskey. She got busy scoping out the place while mingling with the other women, gaining their trust by listening to their tales of woe. One woman told her that she used to be rich, but her gambling addiction had brought her so low that she was sometimes forced to bet using her socks. Isabella proved to have all the traits necessary for a great detective. She was a sympathetic listener, so people tended to tell her their stories. She was unassuming, good at blending into crowds. She could disguise herself as high class, low class, middle class, whatever class, like a chameleon. She was patient and persistent, and she never, never let her disguise slip. One afternoon, when she felt as though she'd heard and seen enough, she casually slipped out of the pool hall, walked until she found the captain who'd hired her and told him all about the lay of the land, how the bets were placed, what he could expect to find inside and so on. She then ambled back to the pool hall and resumed her gambling. When the police burst through the door, she, along with everyone else in the establishment, screamed. Another trait that made Isabella Goodwin a natural detective was that she cared more about getting the scoop than about becoming the story herself. After she was quote-unquote arrested at the pool hall, she slipped away, and even though the New York Times ran a story about how a police matron had, unusually, provided the information needed to bust down a Kennedy Brothers establishment, they didn't include a scrap of identifying information about Isabella, other than her gender. She went quietly back to her day job, changing bedsheets, greeting murderesses at the door, making the tea. But her career was slowly, subtly changing. Now the detectives knew who she was, and if they needed a broad to go undercover, she was the broad they'd call. She was kept particularly busy when the city started to crack down on con artists, snake oil salesmen, and other crooks of the slippery, lying variety. The city was crawling with these sorts of characters, men selling tonics that promised to cure everything from baldness to death, women swearing they could see your future for a price, surgeons with no qualifications whatsoever, and preachers of the dangerously cultish persuasion. In undercover operations like these, Isabella's knack for subtle disguise, along with her keen woman's intuition, were huge assets. In fact, Isabella was a big believer in the power of women's intuition, especially when it came to detective work. She would get hunches, premonitions, and follow them until she found evidence supporting them. She didn't think it was weird at all to trust something as seemingly fleeting as a feeling. Once, she faked a stutter and went undercover to seek treatment from a fraudulent doctor who claimed to be able to cure stuttering. She said it was extremely difficult to learn how to stutter in the first place. She weaseled her way into a job selling fake health and beauty elixirs. She noticed with annoyance that every time she went undercover with a clairvoyant or some other form of future teller, that they would always declare that she wanted desperately to be married. One of them claimed that she wanted desperately to be married to him. She worked on 500 of these cases in 10 years, keeping so busy that she could hardly catch her breath. Literally. Sometimes she'd testify against a con artist at one courthouse and then race to another courthouse to testify against another con artist. Sometimes she was yelled at by the second judge for being a little bit late. Despite the chaos of her work, she was still only a prison matron, technically. Her skills were in demand, and yet somehow she was still stuck Sometimes, listening to her morning opera, it seems likely that she sat and sighed and wished for more. On February 15th, 1912, Isabella was 47, and the bankers of New York City thought that it was going to be a work day just like any other. That day, a taxi driver dutifully picked up two of those bankers who worked for the East River National Bank and who were supposed to head to the Produce Exchange Bank to pick up $25,000 in cash, equivalent to 25 years of Isabella's salary. At first, the ride was normal. The bankers hopped out of the cab, picked up the money, and hopped back into the cab to head back to their workplace and finish the transfer. But then, during the drive home, an innocent old man just happened to stumble in front of the cab, and the taxi driver was forced to slam on the brakes. When the cab paused, two other men burst inside and began beating the bank employees senseless. Blood was flying everywhere. The victims could hardly see who or what was attacking them. And then a third man with a gun was suddenly inside the cab, waving his firearm around and telling the driver to press down on the gas now. Eventually, the robbers scrambled out of the cab and into their waiting getaway car, taking the money and leaving the bank employees bloodied and nearly dead, with one of them slipping into a coma. And just like that, the mood in New York City shifted dramatically. It was the most shocking bank robbery in the city's history, made especially scary by the fact that it happened in broad daylight and that the robbers seemed to have no qualms about cracking innocent skulls. Just like that, $25,000 vanished into thin air. Suddenly, everything that was strong and solid about New York the finance industry, the law, the general decency of people you might pass on the street was starting to seem like a terrifying illusion. Bank messengers immediately began taking armored guards with them. Bankers lined up to register for gun licenses. Terrified customers made runs on the bank, demanding their money back. Stories of a heist spread all over the globe, and the police didn't seem to have a clue who did it. In fact, the deputy police commissioner, George Doherty, was feeling pretty hot around the collar after this robbery. He could feel the city turning on him as hours and then days ticked by with no useful leads, and some of his opponents were starting to talk about arming civilians and training them to track down criminals on their own, a prospect that terrified Doherty, who had actually told New York when he was appointed that people needed to stop trying to solve crimes on their own and leave that to him and his boys in the detective bureau. Everything was dissolving into mayhem, and he needed to find a way out of this pickle. Fast. The only useful clue that Doherty had was a description of one of the criminals from the taxi driver. The criminal, said the driver, was about 30 years old and had a gold tooth sparkling from his mouth beneath a little black mustache. This, thought Doherty, sounded an awful lot like a known gangster named Edward Kinsman, a.k.a. Eddie the Boob. Eddie was a terrifying character, with a penchant for new clothing, a history of professional boxing, and a tendency to get on the wrong side of the law. Eddie had a weak spot, though. His girlfriend, Annie Hull, a.k.a. Swede Annie, was a dancer with a reputation for talking way too much. Maybe, thought Doherty, someone could get Annie talking enough to link her boyfriend to the bank robbery. But Annie wasn't going to talk to some random man. When Doherty called Isabella Goodwin to see if she wanted to take on this assignment, she could tell right away that this was going to be different than her previous work. She'd been in danger before, certainly, but this gig was far more high stakes than all the rest. She was going to be schmoozing with the girlfriend of a dangerous bank robber, not trying to catch some sketchy fortune teller in a lie. More compellingly, Doherty made it clear that if she helped him catch Eddie the boob, her fate might just change completely. Ironically, one of the fortune tellers she had recently arrested had also told her that her life was about to change. Break the case, Mrs. Goodwin, Doherty said. If you break this case, nothing is too good for you. And so Isabella, or Mrs. Goodwin, if you were being formal or a little bit scared of her, put on her shabbiest coat, her least impressive hat, her most scuffed shoes, and a thick Irish brogue, and began wandering through the tenderloin again, this time pretending that she was looking for work. The job would be, of course, a front. After shuffling here and there, grabbing a drink in the saloons, eavesdropping and picking up information however she could, she found that Swede Annie was staying with a roommate at a boarding house on West 21st Street. So she shambled on over to the boarding house and asked for a job as a maid. A job that she got, at the rate of $6 a week. This job came with the perk of a bedroom, a dark, disgusting hole under the stairs where she could sleep whenever she wasn't scrubbing floors. Upon getting the job, Isabella told her daughter that she wouldn't be able to talk with her for a while. It was too risky, she didn't want to lead Eddie's gang right back to her children, and stepped fully into her new life. Since the women who lived at the boarding house kept odd hours, Isabella soon found that she really couldn't sleep at all for fear of missing some whispered clue, some hushed confidence. So she did what any good detective would do in that situation, and chugged coffee 24-7. Over the next eight days, she only managed to grab about eight hours of sleep. She was also too afraid to sleep sometimes, worrying that somehow, vulnerable with dreams, her real identity would be spotted. She knew that if Annie or Eddie or anyone involved in their gang got the slightest whiff of suspicion about her, she would be dead before she could break out her fake brogue again. Before long, Isabella caught a glimpse of Annie's room, which Annie shared with a girl named Myrtle Hoyt, and she also spotted a photo of Eddie the boob on Annie's dresser, which confirmed that he was indeed her boyfriend. Neither Annie or Myrtle seemed inclined to talk, though. Isabella knew she was toying a delicate line. It would have been extremely suspicious if the dirty servant woman suddenly started trying to be their friend. She had to seem like she was focusing on her sweeping, as though she was too dull or tired or overworked to care what they said in front of her. The days proceeded like this, slowly, as Isabella picked up more and more information from the women. In the middle of the night, sometimes, she would crouch on the floor outside Annie's bedroom, listening. For days, she heard nothing of real substance, until one night, she heard Myrtle say, Well, Eddie the boob turned the trick, all right. She continued listening at the door with bated breath as the girls talked. It turned out that Eddie had just taken Swede Annie up to Albany on a romantic and very indulgent vacation, where he'd bought her a suspiciously nice new outfit with cash. She also heard the girls say that Eddie was planning to take Annie to San Francisco with him and would soon be outside the reach of all New York City law enforcement. Annie's triumphant return with her new outfit seemed to make Myrtle seethe with jealousy, and Isabella quickly picked up on the tension in the room. The next day, when Annie left, Isabella just so happened to be doing some chores in their room, and she casually asked Myrtle if anything was wrong. Ugh, Myrtle said. Eddie had given Annie $125 to buy herself all these nice new clothes, and now he was going to take her to California. And before they left for California, they were going to spend the night at a hotel in New York and be all romantic, and ugh, it just wasn't fair. Annie always got the best of everything. Isabella listened, sympathetically, and then casually picked up Annie's new outfit, pretending that mm, she was going to take it away and iron it. Instead, she quickly looked at the label and sent that information on to Doherty, who called the store where it was purchased and confirmed that it had been bought by a man who matched Eddie's description and who paid with $5 bills, just like the ones stolen from the taxi cab. In fact, the shopkeeper said, Eddie had been spending so much money up there, he was like a molting canary. Moving fast, Doherty planted men all across the city to find Eddie and Annie as they met up for their sexy rendezvous. The detectives tracked them to their hotel, left them alone for the night, and then tracked them the next morning as they headed to Grand Central Station to buy two train tickets to California. Eddie, who had indeed been spending a ton of money lately, was wearing an entirely new outfit, down to his silk underwear. Before he could hand over cash for the ticket, detectives surrounded them, and he and Annie were arrested. It was time for Isabella to finally, finally get a promotion. The bank heist trial was a total mess. Eddie confessed quickly and pointed fingers at all his criminal pals. His criminal pals pointed fingers right back at Eddie, and everyone accused everyone else with wild abandon. In fact, Eddie said that the taxicab driver had actually been involved from the beginning, but the taxicab driver said that he was being framed and that the cops had, in fact, bribed two witnesses to accuse him and that those same cops had skimmed $10,000 off the top of the heist in exchange for keeping their mouths shut, etc., etc. Even though Eddie eventually changed his mind and admitted that the cab driver was telling the truth, the judge refused to hear the driver's story, and the poor man was sentenced to 18 years of hard labor at Sing Sing, while Eddie only got a sentence of three to six years, and his criminal compatriots got equally short sentences. Mysteriously, the bank never got the bulk of their money back. Someone, somewhere, still had it. No one ever figured out exactly what was going on there or how far up the crime went, but it wouldn't have been terribly shocking if the police were involved from the beginning or involved after the fact. As poor, drunk John Goodwin knew only too well, the force was corrupt and intensely self-protective. Just three years later, in 1915, the police commissioner, Charles Becker, got the electric chair for ordering the murder of someone who'd tried to call him out for being corrupt. It was a dangerous world, and the criminals were just living in it. However, despite the shadiness that the case had revealed, there was one cold, hard, inarguable fact. Isabella Goodwin had cracked it wide open. With great fanfare, and after almost 16 years on the police force, she was made the first female detective in New York City and the first female municipal detective, that is, one employed by the city, not a private detective agency, in the entire country. Her salary doubled instantly. She became the first female member of the Police Honor Legion. She was given the privilege of wearing the gold shield of the detective sergeant. Newspapers gushed over her, writing things like she was often called upon to take up cases where men would have failed utterly, and Mrs. Isabella Goodwin is Sherlock Holmes in skirts. Journalists, though, were a little bit surprised to find out how unassuming Isabella was in person. She is not dashingly brilliant, the type one would suppose to be most effective with a certain criminal element, nor yet spectacularly made up in dime novel fashion, one of them wrote. She has a kind, motherly face. Her dark hair is not yet streaked with gray, and her gray eyes are full of expression and sympathy. Her nondescript appearance is a studied art with her, for in her calling she accomplishes more by having no distinguishing marks that would make her stand out from the multitude. In other words, the only thing that made Isabella stand out from the crowd was the fact that she was a woman, and that was enough for her. As she had so many years before, she had no desire to become a celebrity after this bank robbery was solved. Sometimes she'd wear a thin black veil over her face, not wanting her visage to become too well-known. After all, that would have interfered with her ability to get the job done. Until her retirement in 1924, she continued to get the job done. The police department created a woman's bureau designed to handle cases involving sex workers, victims of domestic violence, runaways, and so on, and Isabella helped to run it. She continued to work on exposing frauds and made several high-profile arrests of fake medical professionals. In one assignment that had to have been one of her favorites, she even got dressed up and went to the opera to catch ticket scalpers. I think I was born for just such a work as I am doing, she told a reporter in 1912. I think highly of the work, too. I have a great fondness for it, and I don't think I would have been satisfied to have done any other line of it. In 1921, Isabella surprised everyone yet again by getting married to her neighbor, a man named Oscar A. Seeholm, who was 30 years younger than her. Newspapers were mildly scandalized. She refused to talk to journalists about the details of her marriage, though, saying that it was her own business. However, she said, she would be continuing to work. Despite her gruff retorts to the newspapers at the time, she must have been very happy then. Her brand-new husband, it turned out, was an opera singer. ¶¶ The end, everyone. How'd you like Isabella's story? Oh, I can't tell if I want to be a detective or an opera singer after researching her story. Honestly, both sound pretty dope. All right. Um, before I let you go, I just want to remind you that if you like this podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, it would be very much appreciated. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can become a monthly patron at patreon.com slash criminal broads. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash criminal broads where you can sign up for $1 a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, um, and become a supporter of the show and get a postcard or a print from yours truly. Speaking of Patreon, I have a batch of just incredible women to thank this week um let's see they all have great hair did i say that last time well they have great hair this time too i feel like they make really good chocolate chip cookies but also have this like iron willed sense of steely independence that is both inspiring and intimidating to every lesser mortal they meet okay (laughs) today's patrons are lara williams lara thank you so much for being a patron amy michelich thank you amy Susan Sirigliano, awesome. Stacy Tomaszowski, also amazing. The mysteriously named Yo-Yos on the Wharf, who we're loving. And last but certainly not least, Kelly Robinson. Thank you all so much for being supporters. Without you, there would be no podcast. I think that's all the news I have for you today. Um, I've got some exciting episodes coming up, so stay tuned, and I will try to not be late with future episodes. And I wish you all the best in your lives, in your dreams, with your families, with your pets, with your gardens, whatever you're up to. I hope you're enjoying it, and I can't wait to talk to you next time. Until then, have a good one. Bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong Loving you, dear, like I do
0: If it's a crime, then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you
1: Seeking the truth never gets old